Let's take our Bibles and look to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in verse 13 today as we continue our study through this great epistle that God has given to us as an encouragement during difficult days. Certainly those who were experiencing the difficulties of life in Peter's day were encouraged by this, this very text. So let's read that and begin to process what God has for us today. Some of the highlights from last week are that God calls and empowers us to bless people. As some of you are coming in today, you bless me and I appreciate that. And I hope that you've been a blessing to others throughout the week. Because God says of us that not only are we blessed, but we are to bless others. And Peter is reminding them of that truth right before the text that we're reading today. That part of the good life, living the good life and experiencing good days is being a blessing to other people. And our attitude should be that life is good. And it's good in light of what it is, but it's even better and great in light of eternity. That God is going to make all things new one day. He's reconciling everything to himself in Christ Jesus. So our attitude as Christ's followers ought to be a good attitude. And in our good attitudes, we ought to live righteously, as we taught last week, that we ought to keep our tongues from evil, not speak deceit, turning away from evil and pressing towards what is good and seeking and pursuing peace. Now, that kind of leads us to where we are today in verse 13. So let's read that text together. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Listen to this verse, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Well, that last verse there we could spend a, a few moments on uh, just reminding us that the prosperity gospel that is being taught in many churches from the West and then propagated throughout the world is a false gospel. It very well may be the will of God that you and I endure significant suffering. And we ought to embrace that, knowing that he is going to change that in the future. And he will bring vengeance where vengeance is needed. He'll bring justice where justice is needed. And he will bring reward where, re where reward is also needed. Now, generally speaking, if we live a good life, zealous for goodness, out of that, we will bless other people. And it's not very common that any of them would turn against us just because we are righteous people, pursuing and following the will of God. So Peter is rhetorically asking this question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good works? In other words, we shouldn't expect just because we choose to live righteously and press towards righteousness that there is going to be a negative impact. In fact, for the most part, even non-Christians will not come against us when we are acting in righteous ways. When our character is noble and loving and merciful and generous and we are self uh, not self-serving but self-giving, uh, those kind of people are not necessarily turned against because of their righteousness, although it can happen. And certainly there were some in Peter's day who were experiencing that very thing. 
So outright, Peter says about us, we should be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Uh, again, we're going to turn this a little bit because many times we are zealous to have good things. But Peter is saying, oh no, our zealous nature ought to be for good works. Let's think about that for a moment. Now, when you think about someone who's zealous, you're thinking about someone who has a, a bit of veracity about them, sort of a ferocious way about them, pressing towards something that's ideal. Uh, some of you last night proved to be very zealous for your teams. Uh, maybe so zealous that you're a little flat emotionally this morning because you expended all your emotional energy last night. Uh, some of them are so zealous that they're not here this morning because their zealous nature carried them in a different direction. But anyway, a zealous person is a tenacious person, somebody who is living with eagerness. Peter was a zealot. Uh, he was a zealot before he came to know Christ Jesus. Now, he was zealous for the wrong things, but he was very much a zealot. And now he's saying, as a Christ follower, we ought to be zealous. We ought to be a zealot for what is good. We ought to be pursuing with a sense of ferociousness about what is good. We ought to be moving towards that at all times, a driving zealousness for what is good. And, of course, that kind of living will have a positive impact on people around us. If you and I as husbands and wives would be zealous for good for one another, it would change the way our households would be. Now let that conviction kind of settle for a moment. Uh, if you're zealous for what is good as a child, then think about what the relationship between you and your parents would be like. And if you're zealous for what is good, think about the relationship of employer-employee and how that would be transformed. Think about the witness of Christ to your neighbors if you were zealous for what is good and so Peter is making an emphatic call for us, urging us to be zealous. But now there's no certainty that we will not experience troubles even if we pursue goodness. And so he's just bringing that to light that some of those who are readers of this letter probably were suffering for righteousness sake. There may be somebody in your arena of life that will just come against you because you press towards righteousness. And he's giving us an alert about that. Stay the course, I think is what he's saying. Don't be so alarmed when this happens. It happens to some. We live in a very broken and fallen world filled with people who are against the things of Christ. And righteousness is certainly the thing of Christ. So don't be surprised in your zealous for what is good that you would have persecution or suffering that would come against you. Some people experience that. Of course, Jesus Christ himself, who is full of goodness and full of grace, they pursued him for righteousness sake. He was, he was in no way deserving of any of the treatment that he received that was negative, but yet they were pursuant of him because of his righteousness. So we shouldn't assume that we will escape suffering. And some of Peter's readers needed to be reminded of that truth. Persecution will come for some people because of their pursuit of righteousness. So in that truth, let me mention four things that I think Peter is exhorting us to pay attention to and press towards truths that we ought to receive. Number one, recognize the blessing of being a servant of Christ and fear not 
a persecutor. Just recognize the blessing. Look what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now, in the flesh, we might be prone to fear, and we might be troubled when evil people come against us. But Peter is telling us, those of us who are pressing with confidence that we are going to face troubles sometimes, in essence, he is saying for us not to fear the fearsomeness of people who would come against us. Don't let them t intimidate you. Don't be troubled by them. In other words, don't be rattled by them. Instead, recognize the blessing. Now, sometimes blessing is a result of our obedient behavior throughout the Old Testament. We find that to be a rhythm. Blessings follow obedience. Curses follow disobedience. And blessings can kind of be a verb sometimes, but in this case, Peter is writing it. It's not a verb, it's a plural adjective, which means that this is the experience of people who are followers of Jesus Christ. This life of blessing is already belonging to us. Blessings don't come merely because we are enduring suffering and pressing towards goodness. I would say that happens, but that's not what Peter is pointing to. Peter is saying when you're experiencing this and people are coming against you, for the sake of your righteousness, just recognize that you are a blessed individual, that you're a blessed person in Christ Jesus. In verse 12, he mentions a couple of those blessings. We talked about it last week, and here they are. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Hey, that's a pretty good blessing, that God's eyes are on you. And his, he is listening to you. His ear is attentive to you in your praying. He says his ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. So he's saying if they are coming against you, don't fear them. Instead, consider the blessing of what it's like to be a follower of Christ who is pursuing righteousness. God is attentive to you. He is listening to you. Jesus spoke a lot about the blessings that come and calling us to endure persecution and the blessings that we have in the midst of that. Remember in this great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. I mean, that's about as pointed as you get. Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the treasure is already there. The reward is already there. The blessing is already there. Focus there. Know that that truth is significant and it is powerful and impacting. So suffering and persecution do not change in the slightest way the blessings of being a favored son or daughter of the Most High God. Listen to that. You might be enduring suffering, but that doesn't change in one small iota the blessings that God has for you as a favored daughter or favored son, chosen by God, adopted into his family. You might think it does, but it doesn't change anything. And suffering doesn't re-identify you. In fact, it doesn't even change the realities of your life that are already established in Christ Jesus. You might think that it changes the realities, but it doesn't change anything 
about who you are and the promises that are always fulfilled in Christ. Suffering doesn't change your eternal position with God. It may seem that it does, but it doesn't change it at all. And though sometimes we are tempted to think when we are suffering that God is mad at us, that God is punishing us, or that I must be less than I hope for because I'm experiencing this hardship. The reality is, my friends, that your identity in Christ is a certainty and God has promised blessings that will remain unchanged in your life. Those promises and identity are ratified in Jesus Christ and completely guaranteed by his spirit. Trust him in that. In the midst of the suffering, trust him there. Recognize the blessing of being a servant of God and don't fear those who would come against you because the blessings are already yours. So Peter has established that we are to fear God and if we have the right fear of God, then we have no need to fear people. So such a statement reminds me of uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. Uh, I memorized it in a different translation, but I'll read it out of the, the ESV. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare. It's a snare. It's a trap. But those who trust in the Lord, they're safe. In fact, the more we learn to grow and respect God's sovereignty, the less vulnerable we are to fear anything or anyone in this world. Because when we have a proper fear of God, it delivers us from an improper fear of people and circumstances. Fear God. Trust him for the blessings that are yours. And don't, don't fear people. Secondly, be purposeful in honoring Christ in your heart as the holy sovereign. Just be purposeful about this, to honor him in your heart, or as the uh, other translation would say, sanctify him in your heart, because he is sovereign. He is the sovereign, holy Christ. Look what he says in verse, the end of verse 14, the beginning of 15. Have no fear of them, talking about the persecutors, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So if someone is coming against you because you're pursuing goodness, don't fear them. Don't be troubled by them. That word trouble means to be shaking. Don't be, don't be rattled by them would be a, a way that we might express it today in our modern vernacular. Don't, don't be riled up by them. Uh, just keep your pursuit and your purpose to sanctify Christ in your heart. Now, obviously, we experience fear because we live in a broken world and because we are broken. So it, the experience of fear, that initial prompting of fear is very much given to us. But there was no fear when God created the world in the beginning, there was no fear. Where there was no sin, there was no fear. It was only after sin entered into the garden of, where Adam and Eve were that they began to fear God and to hide from him. But prior to that, there, there was no sense of fear in creation on that first day. And let me just remind you, on the first day of the new heaven and the new earth, you and I will experience no fear perpetually. It will forever be gone. When, when we are living with Christ for all eternity, there will be no sense of fear. What a wonderful expression that will be of living where we can discover. Uh, so many of you have seen a posting that one of my neighbors gave about a big snake that we killed in the back of their yard. And 
Uh, I, I've suddenly become a snake handler. <laughs> I'm like, okay, uh, I'm a snake handler when the thing has rat shot riddled into it and it's dead. That's when I can become a, a snake handler when they're dead. Now, those things bring fear. And so I've walked all over the mountain back there and, and I've hiked in all kinds of places and I've fished many a time out there and just stayed out in those woods. But I've always got my eyes open because you never know where those no-shoulder critters are, right? And God has given us that sense of fear of them. But man, one day, one day there will be a discovery throughout heaven and all the cosmos and beyond, and we will not have a shred of fear. What discovery, what glory God will receive in that time. Just amazing. Here he's saying, you don't have to experience fear even though you're living in a fallen world. Kay and I have enjoyed learning about our grandkids. Yeah, the oldest of the two boys is nearly three and a half now, and he's full of energy and has just great imagination. And he loves to make up stories about bears in the woods and about playing soccer. He hadn't played soccer a day in his life, but he keeps telling us that uh, tomorrow's his soccer game. Uh, tomorrow is relative, evidently. It's coming in the future. It's just, it's a big word for him that just means sometime in the future you'll come to my game. And yes, we'll be there. But he makes up stories about that and he'll make up stories about characters on his cartoons that he likes to watch. Like his brother, he brings a lot of joy into us Part of what I love the most about him is that he is just wonderfully transparent. Just tells the rawness of his emotions. I love when we're walking around and he'll just reach up and grab my hand and just walk hand in hand with me unprovoked. And I love how he'll express what's going on on the inside sometimes. Maybe something's frightened him or he's a little nervous about something and he'll say, Ray Ray, me scared. <laughs> In those moments, I help him or at least attempt to, like you do with your kids or grandkids or people you love in your life. I help him to recognize that oftentimes fear is prompted by a lie. He just believes something and it kind of grows bigger than it should or it's just not actually true. Like it's really not something under your bed and there's really not something in your closet. You just kind of have to expose that lie, don't you? And then I'll redirect him to truth. In reality, this is what's true and help him to navigate away from the lie and towards the truth. And then I will shift his attention somewhere else. Because in the flesh, we have a tendency to keep focusing on something that frightens us. And that's a good practice for us. When Peter is telling us not to be troubled, not to be in fear of people or the situation or whatever is coming against us, I think that's probably a good practice for us to experience. Don't dwell on the lie. The truth is what we ought to dwell on. What is the lie? That God is not for me, that God doesn't see me, that God doesn't know, that God doesn't care, 
that this is bigger than, or he's got more to be concerned about than me in this situation, or that somehow he's not going to rectify it, somehow he's not going to redeem this very situation, somehow this is going to impact me greater than what God is going to be able to overcome. All those are lies. And then I have to redirect to truth. What do I know about truth? I know that I'm a blessed son of God. I know that he chose me. I know that he said he would never leave me. I know that Christ said he would redeem all things unto himself. I know that one day he is going to rectify this. I know another day he will bring vengeance and it will go throughout all eternity. I know one day he will rectify this. He will bring justice against those who have come against me and he will reward me if I'm faithful. I know another thing. I need to keep my eyes on him, the author and the finisher of my faith. Those are the things that I need to be elevating. And then I need to redirect my attention. And redirecting my attention may be that I start quoting a verse. I might be singing a glorious song, a praise unto him. I might just think on things that are above, things that are noble and true and right. That same practice that we have with our children, our grandchildren, or for some of you, your great-grandchildren cousins, nephews, nieces, whatever. Those same things are the things that God, our loving Father, does so in a perfect way for us. So you don't have to fear. You can know the blessings that God has for you. You can honor Christ in your heart. Set him above all other things. Setting your mind on things above, not things on the earth. Ah, oh. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So a healthy alternative of fear is faith in Christ. So Peter is instructing us to that. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Or as other translations put it, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Set him above. Set him unique. Set him as a purposefully above and unique all things and all things. Now the word for honor and sanctified is the word hagiazo in the original language of the Bible. We mostly translate that to be holy or to be made holy, to be sanctified, to sanctify something. But in the context of this, I think what he's saying here is to treat Christ as holy. Treat him as separate from everything that you're experiencing. Treat him as above all things with great reverence. Treat him in that way. Make sure the object of your fear is the right object. Really what Peter is doing here is he's quoting Isaiah. I don't know if you remember the history of Israel, but there was a time when Israel was siding with Syria to come against Judah. And that caused a lot of fear to stir up in the, in the southern kingdom. And the prophet Isaiah was instructed by God to make a declaration to them who were fearful of the northern kingdom and Syria linking together. And he says in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. 
So similarly, Peter is saying to us, sanctify Christ in your hearts, honor him as holy, and the instruction is to believe Christ the Lord as sovereign in control, not your pursuing enemy. In other words, you should have a greater measure of the reverence of God in Christ Jesus than you do for any person who comes against you. Don't put your attention on the people who are coming against you. Keep your focus on Christ. Trust him who will sovereignly rectify. Now, will he immediately strike dead the people who are coming against you? Will he close the mouth of your enemy like David was proclaiming to God, please do so? Maybe, maybe not. But you have trust in him. You revere him in your heart to the point that you know that in the end, in eternity, you will look back on this time and you will bless God for his glorious movement and you will trust him more fully because you'll see with all certainty what he was doing. You didn't get to see it all in the midst of it. In the midst of the storm, it sure is hard to see everything that's happening. But when you have somebody who's sovereign over the storms, you can press towards him, trust him, sanctify him in your heart. God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't know why they're coming against me. I've been a pursuant. I've been pursuant of righteousness. Why are they doing this? Lord, are you seeing this? Oh, you are, aren't you? For your eyes are on the righteous and your ears are open to the righteous, Lord. I trust you. I don't get it. I don't see it. I don't understand it, but I trust you. That's having a reverence for God above what you're experiencing. That's what Peter's calling them to. It's what he's calling us to. Number three, take opportunities to defend your faith and hope in Christ. Look again at verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness. That word means meekness, right? Uh, it, it's recognizing you've got the power of truth. You've got the power of testimony, but you're going you're gonna to present this with a gentleness. It's a, re, it's a refrained uh, submissive power that you have, gentleness and respect. Now, we might use this passage, if we just kind of take this verse and snatch it out and just hold it up and look at it and talk about it. We might use this to say, oh, we all ought to be defenders of our faith and good apologists. An apologist is one who can defend the truth. And we might say, oh, see, now we ought to be an apologist and always ready to give a defense. We ought to know what we believe, and we ought to be able to articulate that clearly. And I would say that is absolutely true. We ought to be able to know what we believe and communicate it clearly, that true to other people. But that's not in the context of this, this passage. This isn't meant to be taken out and, and ushered as an imperative to all Christians, although I think it is a good imperative. But what he is saying is that when people see you living out this life, this good life with good days, and they begin to ask you, why do you not repay evil for evil? And why do you bless people who curse you? And why do you have such sympathy and love for brothers and a tender heart and a humble mind? And why do you turn away from evil and press towards what is good? And why do you seek peace and pursue that peace? And why do you walk as one who is blessed? And why do you live fearlessly? And why do you revere Christ Jesus? When they ask you of that, be ready to defend the hope that is in you. You see, your life is meant to be a living witness that people say, hey, well, well, you're different. And when the moment they say there's something different about you, be ready to defend what that hope is. That's what he's saying. 
It's not that you have to go around picking fights, looking for arguments that you might be able to win the argument as an apologist. But live your life in such a way that is completely diverse from the worldly, fleshly culture. Live your life in such a way that they would say, wow, what is different about you? How do you live that way? How is your attitude that way? Why do you not do this for that? And be ready. I'll tell you why. Because there is a hope in me that is greater than that this is going to be resolved today. There's a hope that one day Christ is going to usher me into a physical kingdom that I'm now spiritually connected to. There's a hope that one day Christ is going to be the great executor of justice and he will bring all things to bear and hold all to account for all that has been done. And there is a day that he will not just bring vengeance, but he will bring reward for all who have been faithful to him. My life is surrendered to him because he surrendered his life unto me. He gave me life when I was experiencing death. He gave me light when I was living in darkness. He rescued me and my life is surrendered to him. And as he lived, I so will live live to the glory of his name and by the power of his spirit. Amen. Just be ready to defend it. Why you live differently? You say, well, nobody's ever asked me that. Well, maybe you're not living differently. Wow. Maybe there's no reason for them to ask you the hope that you have in Christ. Maybe we blend in too much. Wow. And Peter is saying to us, oh, man, in Christ it ought to be totally different, radically different, such that they would ask you. So when people experience such a radical life like yours and mine ought to be, they're going to ask us about that. So we ought to be prepared to explain your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Now look at number four. Live with a good conscience, validating your life in Christ. Just live with a good conscience conscience. As I was studying and preparing and writing and praying throughout this past week for this message, it was this number four that really caught my attention. Because we have a tendency to live a good life in front of people. Just live your life of nobility and grace in front of people. Live your life in an expression in that way. But here he's digging deeper he said, oh, it's not just what you do in front of people. It's what you have going on in your heart. Live with a clear conscience. Well, nobody else knows. And nobody knows my conscience other than God and me. So he's saying live with a good conscience. Verse 16, live with a clear conscience. Now, any of us may appear morally good, but the deeper question is, is your conscience clear? And our conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. It's the inner knowledge of our motive and our thought and our behavior. Insight that only God has with us. Every person ought to be living with a clear and good conscience. Even a person who does not know God or his law has a conscience and understanding about what is right and wrong. God has made it that way. He's placed that within their heart. But for Christians, it's even more because not only do you and I have this innate ability to reflect upon ourselves and what we're doing, whether it's good or not, 
God has placed within us his Holy Spirit. And by his grace he has done so because we are vulnerable to deceit. And we are vulnerable to even self-righteousness. So the Spirit of God will bring conviction to our conscience. He'll alert us to sin in our life. And he'll remind us that's not who you are in Christ. In Christ you ought to be different your thoughts ought to be different. Your words ought to be different. Your actions ought to be different. And he will just speak to us in our conscience, reminding us of those things that Christ has taught us by his word. So our conscience have a substantial impact on our ability to represent Jesus Christ. For a clear conscience will stand in the moments of vulnerability. When the abusers and the slanderers come against us, against our good behavior in Christ, when those attacks come and we have an inner knowledge of a good conscience, we can stand more forthrightly in our witness and we can proclaim the transformed life that we have in Jesus Christ because we know it's not a charade. We know this isn't a fake because our conscience is clear. And so live with a good, clear conscience. How do we do that? First, your conscience will never be clean until Jesus Christ gives you a new heart. And so if you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, yielding your life to him, renouncing the sin in your life, coming to him to cleanse you from the inside out, that's the very first place to start. You'll never have a clear conscience without that. And then when we have Christ and his spirit is in us, then we can walk with a good conscience at all times. And I would say, here's some of the ways that we ought to practice having a clear conscience. First, purposefully and practice, practically pursue the things of God. If you want to enable this life with a clear conscience, you ought to pursue the things of God. And what do we know to be the, the things of God? We ought to pursue his presence. Coram Deo, live in the presence of God, just purposefully living in the presence of God, knowing that he is forever attentive to us. That'll help you have a clear conscience. You can get by with stuff when nobody is around, but when you recognize you live before the face of God, then you, you could have a clear conscience. Oh Lord, I don't want to do that. I, I prayed a, a thousand plus times Lord, I'm sorry I even have a tendency toward that temptation. I prayed 10,000 plus times. Oh, God, I'm sorry that I fell for that temptation, that I moved in that direction. I just hate that I even have the tendency of that. Lord, change my heart. Cleanse my heart. Make my conscience clear. Let me have a good conscience before you because that's between you and me. It's not even between Kay and me, my boys and me, my grands and me. That's between me and God alone. Oh, Lord, do a work in my conscience. Let me live before your presence and let me engage your word. Let me press towards practically your church and let me be on your mission. And, oh, God, that I might pursue you in worship every day of my life. That's pursuing purposefully and practicing the things of God. Secondly, denounce and avoid all that God calls sin. And God lists those things in, in the Bible. Denounce those things. Point them out as sin. You say, old times have changed. People have changed. Culture has changed. Yeah, that's true, but God's word hadn't. God is immutable. 
I mean, he doesn't change. So you say, well, how do we know what sin? My goodness, folks, we know what sin. Not because of what the news media tell you, the talking heads. We know what sin because of what God says. Need I remind us that this is what God is going to hold us accountable to? Not the swaying of the world. Not the culture moving. This is what God is going to say. Hey, Randy, let's talk about this. This was my requirement of you. This is what I put in you. Let's talk about that. That's what the Spirit's role is today. To help me to denounce and avoid those things that God calls sin. And then ask others to help you to walk according to the truth of God's Word. According to holiness. You're going to have to do it with other people. Listen, the Spirit of God empowers us to walk righteously. But I'm going to tell you, He uses other people in our lives on that walk. It's meant to be a walk together. It's meant to be faith shields connected to faith shields. It's meant to be confession so that we might be whole. Confession with one another. It's meant to be challenging one another. Encouraging each other to walk in the way of truth. To help each other to point out the lies and to lift up truth. So practically we ought to denounce and avoid all those things that God calls sin and then ask people to join our lives that we might walk in accordance with holiness. And then third, practice a rapid response of confession and repentance. When you sin, not letting it settle in your conscience. Just be quick to respond to that. Oh Lord, I recognize that sin. Would you cleanse me? Don't you love 1 John 4? It says that if we will confess our sin to God, that he is faithful and just to cleanse us. Isn't that a great passage? It's a wonderful thing. So we ought to move towards that. So recognize the blessing of being a servant of God and don't fear other people. Honor Christ with your heart for he alone is sovereign. Set him apart in your lives. Defend your faith and hope when people are asking you because your life is different than theirs. Tell them about the hope that is found in Christ Jesus and live very purposefully with a clear conscience. And you see what kind of joy and goodness this life will bring you. So Father, we obviously need your help. We surrender ourselves to you and ask you to do a work in us. At the same time we surrender to you, we want to pursue the things that you have told us today in your word, the counsel that you've given us through the Spirit, through Peter's writings. So help us, God, I pray. And where you find us struggling, we ask that Jesus would have the victory in that area, that our lives would forever be impacted by this truth that we now cling to. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.